0: This is a production from The Companion. Sci-fi served fresh.
1: Welcome to my interview with an actor I have become great friends with since we started working together on Travelers, which you should check out if you haven't seen it yet on Netflix. From The Companion, this is my conversation in sci-fi with my only friend who has an actual star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame—the incredibly talented Eric McCormack. Hey, Eric, how you doing? My old friend, I am fantastic. How's it with Actually, you? Uh, not much. Oh, well, literally yeah. zero, to be honest. I—it's uh, one of the reasons to to start a podcast is because uh, there's, there's so, so little, you know what I mean? In fact, I think everybody will eventually have their own podcast and we'll all just interview each other. I think that'll be... Well, not only that, we'll we'll all have so
0: little to do. We'll be, all we'll have to do is to sit around and listen to each other's podcast. And all we'll exactly. talk about in the podcast is that we have nothing to do. And all we do is sit around and listen to podcasts. Whoa, that's
1: actually almost deep. That's heavy, <laughs> not really it's not really it's, it's like, like he said. there's an episode in there no not really people say no. that all the time to me people say no oh that that would be a great episode on your show and I go no it was just a funny thing he said it's not yeah. that is or what the I opposite episode
0: <laughs> or the opposite you on twitter yesterday somebody said that would be a great episode and you said yeah it was, that. <laughs> exactly. that, was that was season two how episode would,
1: six what are you talking about how would the director deal with a pandemic um no. we literally shot that. It's uh, Yeah. Well, I yesterday I was
0: I, I was talking to somebody yesterday who said, when is there gonna be a season three? And I said there is a season three. And he went, <laughs> Oh, oh great. So it's uh, sometimes you know
1: be careful what you're complaining about. When is there gonna be a season four? Is uh, Oh well, is, that's is, the about. It's a lovely question. And and I and I we're talking about travelers. We're talking about uh, Travelers. Where Eric and I uh, most recently worked together uh, and had such a wonderful time. We would love to continue it. And the fans would have loved a season four. And we would have loved to have given them a season four. But alas, Netflix.
0: God bless Twitter because we can communicate with our fans in ways that I couldn't have done 20 years ago on on Will & Grace. But just that constant question why isn't there a season four? And sometimes the question is phrased as, well, you guys are the, are the producers, make a season four. And of course, it's like, oh, God, I wish it were that easy. There would be into, 11 seasons by now.
1: It got into crowdfunding, a couple of questions about crowdfunding. And I don't think people really understand how much it costs to make a television show. Yeah. I mean, not with, notwithstanding massive acting fees, it just opening the front door, <laughs> just opening wow. the front door and getting a Give that, Nesta <laughs> Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> so expensive, <laughs> she is now. But um, <laughs> yeah, and worth every penny. It's just bloody expensive to make television properly. We weren't even an expensive show. I mean, no. we were not. I mean, that's
0: the that's the thing I like to brag about about our show is is that is how you, as a very experienced showrunner, knew how to take not a lot and make it look like a lot. That show looks, thanks to several people, but with you at the helm, it looks like a $10 million show, but it wasn't,
1: but it still costs several million an episode to make. It still does. I would give you a first draft of a script and you'd go, oh, this is really great. I love where the bus goes careening down there. And I go, yeah, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't do anymore. It's sort <laughs> of just, it's, it's more parked now. It's, yeah, it's, it's, and and, it's, and it's not a
0: bus. It's not a bus. Yeah. It's a bike. It's, but, it's sort uh, of
1: a bicycle. Uh, but there's a lot of people. It's a multi-person bicycle, and that's how it's going to be. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Yeah. And that actually <laughs> is a real thing that happened. I had a scene early in season one, a traveler who, who got hit by a train, and then and then that doesn't happen because he, he gets taken over. The traveler gets taken over. For those of you who don't know, a traveler is a person from the future, takes over a person in the 21st century uh, via consciousness only. So they take over the lives of people in present day. If you haven't seen the show, you should watch it. Eric's really good at it. But anyway. (laughs) If you haven't uh, seen the show, most of this will make no sense to you. (laughs) Well, people are Will & Grace fans, Eric.
0: Yes, I suppose that's true. Um, But if if you're a Will & Grace fan listening to this, watch Travelers. I'm tremendously proud of it. And you should be. But we ended up doing that train gag. You ended up directing it. We did. I did. That was, And I had done one episode. I, I directed the last episode of season two, which involved a lot of my favorite characters. What do we call them? The the loved ones, I guess, right? They're everybody's yeah, yeah, sort yeah. of wa- wife or boyfriend or they're it trapped in a room. And I thought, this is great. I can do this. Uh, and then the, the next season begins with a freaking train gag. I'm like, oh, my God. How do I do this? But it was... So exciting to to recognize how one mixes the green screen with the CGI with the actual stuff, and we had we were shooting on train tracks. There, it was it was amazing.
1: Well, a section of train tracks. A we section of we train tracks, actually. <laughs> yes. we, that we built ourselves, and Steve Jackson brilliantly <laughs> used a dolly and three lights to create the train in the distance. It was really quite. I, was, uh, I, think,
0: I think the phrase in in filmmaking is a poor man's process, is a, which is yeah, that's a, right. Is the is the idea that you're not going to just add this later on in post? You're not. You really are going to create the illusion of something, like like in the old cartoons, those things on the train tracks, the way where car, characters are going up and down. The little, yeah, yeah, yeah. little cart had one of those, or a dolly track, or a dolly cart with lights on it that just got closer and closer to the camera.
1: It was amazing how effective it looked in the end. And then, of course, we did spend a shit ton of money on a gigantic CG train, which looked great. I thought it looked great. I thought, you know, me too. That's every time you type it, uh, with a smaller budget. Every time you type a big element that you know has to be CG, it, it's a little scary because if it, if, it, if you don't pull it off, the whole, it just pulls the audience right out completely. So true. I I relied my Canadianness.
0: First of all, for, for everyone listening, Brad and I are both in British Columbia, uh, which is where we shot the show. And it's so exciting to be here. I guess we would have finished, we would have been starting season one right about this time in 2016. That's right. So you should, you should tell everybody, because I know you talked a lot about Stargate and stuff, but you should tell uh, the Travelers fans listening how that got started and, and how you found your way to me. How I found my way to you? Well, I mean, it was the a dividing rod. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was a rod of some kind, but, uh, but no, because ha- I think how this sh- show got written is a,
1: is a, is a cool story. Well, yeah, how, you're how right. You- you're right. That's true. I I actually pitched this show everywhere in in LA and in Canada before writing a pilot back in 2015. And when you're, when you're trying to pitch a show that's, that's got a bit of an esoteric sci-fi twist to it, you, you, know, it it's, you have to try to talk to people who are not sci-fi minded and try to sell it to them and make them think it's mainstream, which ultimately the show ended up being, I think, more accessible than most sci-fi. And at least three times in LA, I thought I sold it in the room because people were like, wow, this is great. But then when they went to try to pitch it to their bosses, it, it, they, they couldn't do it. They, it, it just, they fell short and, and, it, and nobody bought it. So I said, screw it. I'm going to write a spec pilot and make it clear. And so almost, during, uh, almost finished the spec pilot stage, I'd written four pages to help describe the series. I'd written the pilot. The Canadian Film Centre, founded by Norman Jewison in Toronto, called me up and asked if I would be a mentor, a screenwriter in residence, I think they called it, showrunner in residence, and would I take a pilot idea and develop it with a group of their young writers in their program. And the timing was perfect because I also got to choose the writers. So I ended up going to the CFC with a finished pilot, which just took me a few more weeks to write it, Reddit helped choose the writers. And, and there uh, we developed Travelers further. We spent like eight weeks or nine weeks. Each of them wrote a script uh, over that course. It was actually more than nine weeks. But, uh, and then I, I, my producing partner, Carrie Mudd, uh, who we produce Travelers with, uh, we, we all know and love Carrie, she made a, a contact with Netflix and said, let's go pitch it to them. And so she and I took the nine stories I had, not the scripts, because they, they would have needed major rewriting and did, and we went into Netflix and said, we've developed a show. There's nine stories uh, and a pilot script that's pretty solid. What do you think? Most other networks, as you all know, would, would turn their nose up at that because they don't like stuff that developed. They want to be able to help do it themselves. But at the time, Netflix went, yeah, we love this idea. Let's do it.
0: Netflix Netflix was the one, I think starting with House of Cards, that kind of went, uh, you only have one season? Could we do three? I mean, they were they, yeah, exactly. the ones encouraging that kind of long-range thinking, which... And I think it's interesting that your your program is called Showrunner in Residence, because for those who don't know, it's not a position in film or in in on stage. It's strictly f- for shows. And it's one thing to write a pilot. It's one thing to be a writer, but the skill to run a show, to have the overview, to be able to speak to each department and be the dad, the dad of a lot of people, is separate, it's a separate skill. Or mom, and, and, absolutely. And and Brad was both a great dad and a very tender mom
1: <laughs> to all yeah, of us. Yeah. But, I was but anyway, the so creepy Uncle, and I'm proud of that. But no, and then, so step two was, of course, the McLaren. Actually, it was Mackenzie in the original pilot, but then we hired somebody named McKenzie, and so we changed the name to McLaren. But that was obviously the lead, and they said, who do you see? And I said, well, I... I kind of wrote the script with Eric McCormack in mind because you and I worked together on the Outer Limits back in 1962. I want to I think it was. <laughs> no, that was the original. Never mind. No, yes.
0: sorry. We we developed the original in 1962. Uh, yes, I, th- yes. I, I want to say based based on my memory of coming to Vancouver, I want to say that it was about 90, either 93 or 96, one of those two. I think uh, it was 93. I
1: think it was, it was 93. Narrow. It was early yeah. early Outer Limits, and I was writing and producing that show. And you and I got a chance to work together on, a, on an episode called Tempest, which was, I think, a great episode and a little ambitious. I mean, we did build a spaceship. It was. It was me and Bert Young, Bert Young. From, uh, from Rocky. Yeah. And a really great cast. And anyway, so I had worked with you and I knew you had chops and I knew you were Canadian. And I wanted, as a proud Canadian, I wanted it to be a Canadian show. Or at least my rule is I look here first. Yeah, and yeah. I said, "What about Eric and Cormac? And they said, "That would be great." So, I was literally on a trip with my wife and her mother in Las Vegas, and and you said, "Well, why don't you come to L.A.?" And I and I hopped on a plane from Vegas to L.A. We had like coffee in your backyard, yes, and uh, <laughs> and we hit it off and remembered working together on the Outer Limits, and I was stunned. I, to, to be honest, I was I was stunned that you responded so positively. To the pilot script and it, it, it's a good indication of your character because your character doesn't show up in the first it's 20 right till, minutes
0: i think it was like page 35 or something but it was it, uh, it,
1: well it's a little deep but it's definitely deep into the script before uh your character shows up and you kept reading so a lot of lead actors would go uh i'm not actually in this so uh, this well, the is other probably- key, the, uh, the other key thing for
0: one thing i did remember I was reading it with an eye to, uh, my first thought, and I'll I'll be honest with all of the the sci-fi fans out there, it's not my first genre, it's not where I go. And so I thought, oh boy, here we go, page three, where does the spaceship land? And it wasn't that, it was something else. It was something, and I thought, this is all set now. When do we go into space? When do we go into some distant future? It read like an espionage piece, which is, to me, ultimately what it always was. We were spies. We just happened to be from 500 years from now. And I just thought that that was so smart, but it also allowed me to do what I do best and let, let Brad and everybody else take care of the sci-fi aspect of it. Because for me, it, was always, it always felt naturalistic. It didn't feel like we were doing something um, otherworldly
1: yeah the one thing that we we kind of decided early on because we tried it in, in in the second episode and it immediately felt a little uh, uncomfortable when we got too sci-fi like when it was more about the mission than about the characters right and you, know, you have to do that and it was definitely part built into the, the fabric of the show but what we started doing is is not worrying so much about the mechanics like we never showed the machine that did the thing we just showed the machine and then did the thing.
0: At the same time, my my wife is a huge sci-fi person, reading it, watching it, and, I mean, you cannot fool that woman. And so she was so excited I was doing this show, but when we finally started to air, or at least she could see the episodes, she'd finish one and go, "Uh, okay, yeah, but they have to answer this. And I would just keep my mouth shut, because I knew that Brad had answered it in the next episode or the one after that. You, I think, were so attentive, to the intelligence of a sci-fi audience, but still found a way to entertain a much more mainstream. It's also the privilege of
1: Netflix, though. Because true. when you know you're going to do you shoot them all. You know that question is going to be answered. You know that the audience won't demand of it this week, and they might not tune in next next week. I mean, they, right. they, they might not watch the next episode, it's true. But if you get into a pattern of eventually answering questions, the, the audience goes, oh, they'll get to it, or they'll answer that eventually, and, and begin a, a sort of bond of trust. I mean, there were questions that we, that we raised in season one that we didn't answer until season two. I mean, we knew the director was an AI, spoiler alert, um, from the beginning, <laughs> but I wanted to hold that information back. I wanted the audience to be going, well, who is this guy? That's ridiculous. He has way too much power. How could he, oh, right. it's an AI. Ah, now it all makes sense. Which I think is one of the reasons uh, our show gets rewatched so much. That's true. And, and and also just, I mean, this whole idea of
0: binging, which is something that's uh, obviously pretty new to all of us. But people, I, I still get it, That which makes me so happy. The Travelers, and, and thanks to Netflix, is still very much there whenever anybody wants to discover it. And whenever people discover it, at least according to the people on Twitter, they seem to discover it within about a day and a half. Like, I just I just watched all three episodes and I haven't slept. Yeah. And I yeah. think that that sort of, not all shows have that. Uh, you might want to binge them, but you eventually go to sleep. I, I think with this show, there's something about, you end every episode of this show, Brad, with an absolute, I wouldn't even necessarily call them a cliffhanger as much as they're just, something delicious that you was like, what? now I need to know more.
1: You know, it, it's funny. It, it isn't a cliffhanger. And it took me some time to figure out how to do it. And oh. and Netflix, to their credit, they, they don't call it a cliffhanger either. They, they just say, it doesn't matter what it is. Give me that thing that yeah. makes them want to watch the next episode now. Because that is what makes Netflix different than a, every other network. A cliffhanger is a... Oh no, they're gonna. I have to watch next week or I won't find out. Right. But something that is like even more like bait. My favorite one on the show is Trevor and Philip are sitting in, uh, at Ops and Trevor's eating a hamburger. And Philip has written future stuff all over the, the door of, of Ops. Right. And he looks at the wall and he walks over and we don't reveal what the wall is at all. And Philip goes, What? And Trevor goes, I know this person. Actually, in a much more gravelly, cool voice than that. Sure. And, and <laughs> I don't and, know anyone wanted to speak like this. <laughs> I know it's so great. I know this person. Cut to black. Yeah. Which was a great motif too. But that was perfect. That makes you tune into the next episode, even though we didn't find out with the relevance of, the, relevance of that for many yeah. episodes.
0: Let's talk for a second now. So, so you got me. You had me at. I had to go on the call sheet. Yeah, she had me a low And and so I was really excited about that. You also had me at I've seen some people already for these roles, these right. young roles, because I was coming in as grandpa. But <laughs> but you, I've seen all these people they are all in their 20s, like 20s. Uh, <laughs> and you started sending me everyone's audition tapes. And you'd already you'd already found them. And they were such a huge part, they're sort of as yet undiscovered untapped brilliance was a huge part of this show and and I got so excited to think that this was the team
1: this was the traveler team. We we did we did luck out and I have to say part of that Maureen gets huge huge credit for that. Yes
0: Maureen our, our, Webb our casting director.
1: Yes brilliant. She, she literally brought our cast into the room uh, for, you know and said one by one and said you know as, as you do in casting. Nick, our, our, Nick Horan, our pilot director, looked at each other over and over again and went, she's perfect, or he's perfect. And, of course, I, I didn't expect to get you, but I did write McLaren with your voice in my head, hopefully. I didn't, I didn't think I'd be able to get you, but thank God you responded. I did write David for Patrick Gilmore, no, yes, no question. I mean, I just yes. wrote it for him, period.
0: Fan, of, I would have to say, if, if anything defines fan-favorite, it's Patrick. Well, people
1: Morris, love David. him. Yeah, I mean, people love him. Uh, and and cast paper. we adored him. Yeah, he's a, he's wonderful. Hard character to to keep a lot fresh, <laughs> alive too. Obviously, uh, we kept killing him. But Mackenzie Porter, we we literally cast her off her self tape. We, we made an offer off her self tape. I've never done that before because she, she was so obviously Marcy. And we naturally, we decided to do this uh, casting process during pilot season. So it's very difficult to be doing a relatively small Canadian show. And you weren't officially attached yet, so we couldn't use that as bait either. We couldn't even say, Eric McCormack's a star. And we got all these fabulous actors. And they were all damn nice people, too. Not an asshole in the bunch. Yeah.
0: That was our, well, that was our rule, Brad. And I decided at, at, at that coffee in my yard, yeah. no assholes.
1: Well, we have a. Uh, there's another way that uh, Richard D. just put it. It's uh, LTS. Life's too short well, yeah. because an asshole, not just uh, anywhere in the crew, it, it's toxic and it it's, it wrecks everything, yeah. uh, and, and it's contagious. You know, one asshole can lead to two. Which is uh, <laughs> and, there's a whole episode two, of something. That's, that's right. And two
0: assholes. That's just a lot of shit. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, so Mackenzie was, uh, there's no question Mackenzie was uh Marcy. Her chemistry with uh with Patrick off the bat was was amazing. And again, for those who haven't seen the show, but for, for those who have too, it's it's to me always the reason I can go back to it and I can watch it again is that as it, we're watching the show often through David's eyes, his discovery of this weird behavior in Marcy, and then eventually her weird friends, one of whom works for the FBI. And but the travelers discover we, as their their own behavior as they discover the stuff they've never had, whether it be a hamburger, or petting a dog, or all of the things. Or that tying are gone, a tie. Or tying that a tie. Was that another was another thing you did. I love that. That's right. That was not in the script. I was. I mean, that my favorite thing. Um, Leah Karens, as my wife, was also brilliant casting. The idea that, as we all get the feeling once in a while, that our spouse is acting weird today. Why? You know, it could be that they're just in a bad mood, or it could be that they're from the future. And uh, the idea that I suddenly had to do things that I wasn't trained... I was trained to do a lot of stuff 500 years from now, but nobody ever told me how to tie a tie, and just... There weren't any neckties. There were no neckties. And I'd like to think that eventually the necktie will disappear with, uh, with the coming <laughs> centuries, because it's just dumb. But the idea of me trying to do that with her staring at me in the, in the bathroom mirror, that to me is the fun stuff. People always say, what was the most fun thing of Travelers? And sometimes it was the big set pieces, like the scene at the barn at the end of season one is probably my favorite day. Of Directed
1: by Amanda coaching. Tapping and, and- The great Amanda uh, Tapping. I mean, that was, that was one day shoot that whole that whole exchange. Yeah, and, and, and all the travelers together and uh, all the stuff that mattered. But it was the little
0: things. It was the little things uh, with Leah. It was the little things uh, with Arnold Pinnock as my partner at the FBI. Those little moments where you go, this guy's, st- all, all of them, all five of the travelers are still kind of winging it because they know big stuff, but it's the little stuff that they still have to keep <laughs> catching up on. Well,
1: and, and the whole premise of the show really was, was that. It was born out of the idea of social media surviving deep into the future, and people thinking, people putting themselves out there in social media, and it isn't really who they are. You know what I mean? It isn't-, it isn't Yeah, well, that's, you know, the, that the per- is true. That
0: was, that was the central conceit of the show, wasn't it? Is the idea yeah. that it was after suddenly, it was after the internet, it was after social media, that suddenly all of this was possible.
1: It had to be set at a time where you could go back to a time that could be precisely accurately calculated. You can't just, and we say Correct. this in episode 11, you can't go back and, and kill Hitler because, you know, who, who knows if that clock on the wall was accurate. And um, yes, you have to land and, and in you the have exact to be right in, moment. Yeah. And time and place. But Marcy Marcy's uh, social media account was fake. It was made up by David. Right, which was one of the more, more
0: brilliant things. And, and one the, probably my favorite thing in the pilot was this concept that people were landing in the right body, but they didn't have all the information. And that's what made... Uh, Riley's character is so interesting with the heroin addiction, all that stuff was so... Yeah,
1: his parents different. never put in the funeral notice that that uh, he died from a, from a heroin overdose. Why would they? Right. Uh, if they were the kind of people who wouldn't do that. So the director made that mistake. And and McLaren's baggage, most of your baggage, was the fact that you had, were in a, a relationship that was well over 10 years old. Of course you were going to get discovered. I mean... You know, it's it, it, having been in long-term marriages, both of us. If I if I got taken over by an alien, I'm sure my wife would figure it out in a couple of months.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Slowly but surely. Wait a minute, he's doing I, I, I laundry. Thought,
1: <laughs> well, that is actually kind of one of the funnier things. It, yeah. One of the tells in after episode six of season one, uh, season six seven, episode six or seven is that uh, Grant is better at sex than he was before that's <laughs> that's one. Of, that's how she tells that's how she knows she tells her mother he's cheating he's cheating because he didn't do
0: that one before exactly he, he, he never gave me a number four and a number six at the same time
1: I don't even uh, know what that means so I'm you know I was I'm just glad that you know this has opened up a world for you because I know that and this is this is a side note uh, Eric and I grew up in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada together, about six or eight blocks away from each other, two years apart. I'm older, obviously. But, yes. but when, I was, when I was a kid, I dreamed, I, I read science fiction, I absorbed science fiction, it was my thing. And I, I dreamed of being an actor too. You never dreamed in a million years of being a science fiction actor. You wanted to be an actor, obviously, and good on you, but you never imagined doing this shit.
0: No, and when and when I, you know, I was I was very much theater and and I was five years in, in Shakespeare and other theaters across the country. Uh, and when I first got into television, you didn't question what it was. It was a cop show, it was I was a lawyer. Uh, and the episode of The Outer Limits was okay, I'm I'm this, literally a spaceman for this episode. But in general, I was not not a Star Trek guy. I was not even really a Star Wars guy. I know, I know, I have to be careful when I say that, because people get very upset. But um <laughs> I was the guy at 14 when everybody else was going to see Star Wars for the 11th time that summer, I was going back to see Annie Hall. So I was, that was, that was me. But the, uh, somebody asked on the um, cause I, I let everybody know on Twitter that we're going to do this. And I said, any questions? And somebody wanted to ask about free enterprise, which is a movie I did in, in 98. Right. And it was about Star Trek fans like ultimate fans two but two of them best friends as adults who meet uh, Bill Shatner and I I don't know how I even got the part I virtually had to learn most of the script phonetically because I had I had no idea all oh, there's all these references to specific episodes that I just had never seen and the two guys that made the movie were appalled just appalled that I didn't know what the hell I was talking about.
1: I, I I can quote uh, the original Star Trek series probably chapter and verse but I thought, I just loved it. I just absolutely loved it. In fact, I would have killed to write on Star Trek. I would have loved to write, well, not for the original series. I was 6 years old, but for Star Trek the Next Generation with uh, mm-hmm. Patrick Stewart. I just I just loved that show. Now it doesn't really hold up. I mean, certainly not the earlier episodes. They weren't the first 3 seasons even weren't very good. But there's just something about the the positivity of the future, the outlook mm-hmm. of the future. That came with Star Trek and I think that carries over to travelers. I mean despite the fact that the future's horrific in travelers, there's still I think hope imbued in the in the characters and in the show in general that that uh, it comes from that, I think you know they're trying to do some something real and their faith, which is interesting because yeah. it's not religious faith, it's their faith in the director.
0: Which well, you and character. particularly embodied, yeah, embodied by McLaren as the as the boss, who's is like the guy saying we are following orders here, and the orders are good, and the orders aren't to be questioned. And so that idea, by the end of season one, beginning of season two, that there's a whole faction of people questioning the director and acting on, on of, of their own accord, is. Is fascinating to me, and but but there's sort of what we, we used to refer to McLaren as a Boy Scout. Yes, so. probably Hall, uh, yeah. Louis Ferrara, who played Hall. Uh, I went for a walk. I, yes, I went for a walk uh, with him the other day. He's doing very well, but uh, he I think he was the one that's that called McLaren a Boy Scout, and uh, yeah. and it was true. That's and it be, and it was that spirit, because I think that's Brad's spirit too, for those that are listening, Brad, is he put a lot of himself in David, but I think you he also, he also put a lot of yourself in McLaren in the idea of of just
1: believing and having having faith in your own plan and in your own heart. I'm, I'm, I'm not really as nice as either of those characters, but I can type them, so it must be in there somewhere. <laughs> I had a question based on something that you were talking about, mm. and then he blew smoke up my ass and I got all the flutter. <laughs> Yeah, it was about it was about the future, and it was about about how I I, I love the the hope that comes with characters like uh, like Ted Lasso, you know. You've, have you seen exactly, Ted Lasso? Yet? Yeah. Oh, it's one of my, it's my favorite thing of the year, probably. Oh my um, God, it's just he he you know it's like shitty shitty things are happening, and he's still optimistic all the way to the end. And I it's there's just something to it that that I can't let go of and must write. And and, and that's why you know fans kept saying. We want to see the future. We could, and that was actually one of the questions posed on Twitter: Will we ever see the future? And people kept asking that. And, and we had windows into it, like you pointed out. In
0: yeah, I think we we did. The, the first one thing I really loved in season one that I don't even know how much you warned me about because I knew I knew that the first sort of five six episodes we're building to our big mission and that happened. It was probably our most sci-fi episode, I think was episode six where we were in nuclear facility and and all that, it felt very, very uh, action movie. And then we started the next episode, one of my favorite moments of reading one of the Traveler scripts, because it's one of my favorite moments as an actor in general on a series is that you might know a little, but you don't know a lot until the script arrives and you go, huh, what? I say, what? naked and and, and say so everything's a surprise. <laughs> and episode seven was this kind of what we call protocol five. It was like, uh, oh, I guess, what if that's our only mission? What if we're just stuck here in the past and our main job is just to play these roles for the rest of our lives? And uh, I just thought that was the most interesting thing to, most interesting left turn to take in in season one of of an otherwise very sci-fi show
1: well it, there was a sci-fi element. We, we element we uh we needed to include uh, every every show i felt needed a little sci-fi element and and in that case it was there was a byproduct of of a of an antitoxin that you took because of the previous episode right never thinking you were gonna or worrying about what the after effects could be because you really didn't expect to continue to exist you have to watch the episode to really understand that comment but it allowed to, it allowed hallucination and, and kind of sci-fi right. hallucinations. And in that respect, you started hallucinating people from the future, including your former lover, which allowed us to do a, a love scene without it being inappropriately, uh, well, I mean, certainly taking some of the onus off of the character. Right. And,
0: and what, I think it's for anyone that's really focused on that scene, Helen Shaver directed this episode, as I recall. There's this love scene yes. in the kitchen. I'm... Crazy! I'm a little drunk from my surprise party at the FBI. I'm You've been awake crazy. for forty-eight hours. Right. Uh, that's right. I haven't even slept yet. In the past, I have. I have arrived here and kept going, and I'm on this antitoxin, and so I'm seeing the woman in front of me, who is really my new wife from, uh, as embodied by Leah Cairns, But I'm seeing her as Carly. But not the Carly that the audience is seeing, because she's also in another body from from the 21st century. I'm seeing is the Carly from the future. It's the most complicated thing, and we flash back and forth in in his sort of vision from what POV, he thinks yeah. he's seeing, what he thinks he's seeing, to what he who, who he's really kissing. And I I just thought, uh, I just thought it was a great scene because that it said besides the fact that you know it was a kissing scene, but it was like. This is how complicated this is for these people. This is the, the number of levels of deceit that they have to keep up in order to do their job.
1: It was nice to, it's nice to write scenes that sort of illustrate the problem in one fell swoop. It's like, oh, so this is what they're dealing with, people. You yeah. know, he's, he's imagining this person, but he's really this person, and that person's really in that body over there. Uh, Helen did a massive job of directing that scene. She really did we also showed windows into the future with the artwork of Simon in season two. And then of course we did a full on flashback in season three of the dome. And when we did that, we, we, it was a fairly expensive matte painting, a 3d matte painting with Trevor, one of the iterations of Trevor looking at the last shred of light coming through the dome before it got covered in snow. Yeah. And, and people wanted to see the future, but I kept saying, guys, then, then Eric isn't playing (laughs) Thirty-four, sixty-eight. It's somebody else. It's it, it, right. it's, it, and you know, we it would be stupid to to have him do that because talk about confusing. So, cutting to the future would be a completely different cast. But had we continued the show, it would have been, it would have with a significant more funding too, because it would have been ridiculously expensive. Uh, that's something that I would have wanted to explore. You know, the just how right. that how how the people in the future look back and went hmm. And, and, and a good opportunity in the unlikely event, but still fingers crossed in my heart and in my mind, uh, that we get to play in this sandbox again. It would yeah. be nice. Uh, if you love the show, you should know that Eric and I probably spent 10 hours uh, over lunches after season three coming up with ways it could come back and ways Eric uh, Eric's character McLaren could stride on alone for a while in the future. And and I had come up with lots of ways that we could bring the uh, original cast back. Uh, it was
0: complicated. It was complicated because some of them s- sort of died or, or expired or, or something. There, was, there were just things that seemed impossible. And yet it's it's time travel and it's Brad. So there were possibilities. But I, for those that, I know it's been, um, it's been retweeted a lot, but I made a video when it was finally official that Netflix was not going to give us a fourth season. I made a video in my living room sort of saying this was officially protocol five forever, but I I was bearded in that. And the reason I was bearded, was not for some other role. I was really still hoping that we would make a season four. And Brad and I had talked about this could be significantly in the first, uh, in the future of the 21st, like 10 years, like whatever. So he would have aged, but not everybody else had, I can't remember what the idea was, but I just knew that
1: I was, I wanted to be like up in the mountains
0: or something. hiding. Well, you
1: would have aged relative to 2001. Right, so you could be bearded and slightly older relative to that, because big spoiler alert: McLaren goes back yeah. to um, two thousand and one uh, in order to save everything and everyone, and it, and his his marriage. That that was my favorite part of that storyline. McLaren ends up loving his twenty first century wife so much, and not not just because she's cool, but because in season one. We gave him access to some of his previous hosts' most fond memories of that yeah. relationship. And so he literally came out of uh, Surgery in Love, which was an alternate title, Surgery in Love. Uh, would have been good. Um, <laughs> it would have been good. The,
0: uh, th- that is another one of my favorite episodes. When I think back, I realize just how ambitious season oh, one was, particularly the latter half of season one, where... Season two did all the things I thought you were going to do because you basically had told me you had. But then season two, uh, the latter half of season one became things like that episode where, the, first of all, the plane episode. This, the plane. Oh, my this, God. Bishop. You know, the politician on the plane, Bishop. Um, 109. The, the idea that I had a... Because we, we, we could have new assignments now rather than the big one we were sent here for. Now we were kind of waiting for children to come along and give us assignments which again, one of my favorite aspects of, of the show that you came up with, but I get my assignment and it's protecting this guy. I take him on a plane. I'm not good on planes. I love the idea that someone who's you know zipped through the centuries into someone else's body just doesn't like flying. But well, then nobody then flies. We realize, there. Nobody flies. And then we realize the plane's going down, and my job is to, is to save only him and me in this. What was it called? Uh, the, the, the I, it was. A, no, no, the uh, the thing I had to save us in the the oh, bottles, uh, some some great sci-fi Stasis, names, Field. But stasis a Field. Stasis Field, of course, a Stasis Field. But then my wife shows up on the plane because she's following me, and I have to I save them both. But that led to this next episode where I, remarkably, had visions from some part of my host's brain of the love I had for my wife, and just the combination of. The scenes we had to do, these incredibly sci-fi scenes where the doctor from the future comes in and he's using the, um, what was the black liquid called? I'm forgetting now. The stuff that saves oh, everybody that it was all the just, It was ferrofluid. Nan- 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 it was nanites.
1: fluid. was nanites in the story. Nanites. It really is just liquid with iron filings in it, so it reacts to a magnet but, underneath a petri but dish. But
0: I think that was the first episode where the idea of nanites was introduced. Yes. It was so cool. Yeah. And I'm going to be saved by nanites and... <laughs> <laughs> Always. Learned. Well, yeah,
1: I, I, we had to do that because there's just no bloody way in a million years you would have survived that impact. Uh, it's just you know you would have right. been mush. Uh, and which Marcy says,
0: <laughs> right, exactly. And I think that's the first of several episodes where where Trevor, who's also in some pain, says, "Give me, oh, I want some of that sweet nanotech," uh, which is yeah. one of my fa- one of my favorite line readings uh, from him. But um, <laughs> but. That, that idea of mixing the, the truly romantic and sentimental memories of the real host and, 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 and his wife, Kat, and just the sheer sci-fi of, of turning that garage ops into a, a surgical center, I think it's a beautiful episode.
1: For the reasons you said, I'm proud of season one, because of how we pulled it off. It was close there. We, we were, it's hard to make a television show, but the, here's another thing the audience, would have had no idea. For the first two seasons, we we were shooting in an old post office in downtown Vancouver. And it, I mean, we've been doing this a long time. Was that not the best place ever to shoot anything? Well,
0: I mean, uh, I live about 20 minutes from there in Vancouver when I'm in Vancouver. And I was <laughs> riding my Vespa to work and we'd park in the park, we'd go to the, the production, everything was in that giant old post office, our production offices, our post-production offices, most of the sets. And we'd shoot downtown, which rarely happens because downtown was just, we were there.
1: I loved it. I loved it. Oh, so much fun. So much fun. And and uh, and because it's expensive to shoot downtown. You can't, you, you, yeah. I mean, to get the permits on the road for all the... Crew vehicles, uh, and and it's it's a gigantic. It's like a springy a circus. That's why they call it a circus. And we could do stuff that were way way beyond our, our normal any show's normal budget. But crashing an airplane scared the shit out of me. And mm-hmm. we brought up an airplane set from L.A. that looked pretty damn good. And Will, our, uh, the director of that episode, who great director, back from the Stargate days, yeah. fabulous camera operator too. In fact, he operated for you on your first episode, directing. Remember, just for fun. Just for fun. He just came in and did C camera. That's right.
0: And then he did all the drone work in the uh, in the next episode. He, oh, he's, I know, he's no. incredible. And yeah.
1: that's yeah, a great guy, great director. But you know, he had he had grips literally shaking the set outside so that the plane was shaking, and it looked like it would look. It was quite yeah. impressive. That's I don't know if I uh, ever ever told you this, but. I came into the CFC writers' room with that as one of the stories. Because to me, it, it it presents the perfect moral dilemma of science fiction. Good science fiction always has at its core some sort of moral dilemma. Do I do the right thing? You know, how do I how do I get out of this and do the right thing? And McLaren being responsible for the fact that his wife is on that plane because she believes he's cheating on her feeling the responsibility the moral obligation to try to save her to put her in the stasis field instead of himself even though it's against the director's orders which when you know mclaren is a huge cheat yeah i mean so oh my god it's like it's like defying god literally the point of the story is that's one of the stories i pitched in the netflix pitch that carrie and i went down to do Wow. i I said they had read the pilot and i said and and for example i don't know what episode is six or seven or eight and I pitched that story on, and literally on my feet because I get excited when I'm pitching sometimes. <laughs> and 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 I think that more that that was what sold it for Netflix. That that episode, that story, that moment, and it was so great. Uh, at lunch, uh, Larry, uh, the our executive at Netflix who actually greenlit the show, sat down in, in, in one of the chairs of the plane, and mm. guys, said, God, it feels like a real plane." And in the episode, we had all the the air masks had fallen. I said, here, strap strap it on your face, and I'll take a picture, and and you can send it to your family. (laughs) He did, (laughs) (laughs) you know, not a picture that you normally want to send anyone, you with an an ear mask on. But he he did it, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, It was great that we got to do three seasons. Four would have been nice. I can't really blame them. That's no, and model. it was—it is
0: their business model, and it had it sort of at that moment sort of become their business model. They had decided that what was working best for them was something that had at least that many, but not a whole lot more. And and we understood. So, I think the I think of the three seasons as as this sort of surprising first season where so much is revealed to the audience, but not all at once. You really got to pay attention to understand the protocols, the rules, why characters can and cannot do certain things. Then the whole idea of season two being uh, starting with a flashback to <laughs> 001, the guy, the very first traveler, and what an asshole he was and how he was the one that started this concept of, I don't have to do what they tell me. So he, he buggered the whole thing up. And we got the, the beautiful Enrico Colantoni to play that. Uh, and the ambition oh, of the film. The ambition that you said it first episode of season two on 9-11 that he was someone that was supposed to die in that tragedy and because of his knowledge of the future, uh, escaped with his life, and and obviously all the guilt that that must have come with that, set up the whole uh, sort of season two beautifully, the idea that there was an AI that he was the first to kind of go, I'm not gonna, no, I'm not gonna let the rest of the the world be decided by this freaking computer. But then season three, because we knew, we didn't know, no, I mean, uh, uh, we all fought quite valiantly to create such a great season three that Netflix couldn't possibly not pick (laughs) us up. But we knew that you, at least I certainly knew that you were kind of forced to create an ending of sorts. And I think that was, talk about that for a second, because I think that was a really tough spot for you to be in to create something that was gonna be satisfying for the network, satisfying for us as a show, and
1: hopefully not piss off everybody in the audience. Well, Uh, you know, what, we were almost heartbroken when we went in to talk about season three. Because I, I, I swore, I didn't, I didn't want to miss that ending. Because I had had that ending of David and Marcy on the bus in my head for, for quite some time. And, and, it, and it ended up being beautiful. It ended up being exactly, if not more, than what I hoped it would be in terms of the emotional impact. Possibly yeah. because we killed David so many times and the <laughs> There's there's two there's two relationship endings there's the there's the one with you and Kat and the, and then the the one with with David and Marcy, but it, we, we, it was like I was trying to make it an ending non-ending. I was trying to leave the door open a crack. Yeah, and that version too, I have since come to realize, Aaron, is is still very doable. It just wouldn't be one more season. It would have to be, I would call it Travelers 2.0. if in the unlikely event Travelers. I don't know how unlikely Netflix knows what the numbers are, and obviously we're gaining. I get tweeted to every day, and I know you do too, about how yeah. much travelers is being discovered, and especially because of the pandemic, it may have created a, a more groundswell than there ever would have been otherwise. But but travelers two point would be an extension beyond where you and I discussed. What beyond McLaren, you know, finding its way from two thousand and one to present day, growing a beard the whole time, it took that long. <laughs> Yeah. Uh some awkward <laughs> fuzzy peach fuzz moments uh, like in the Or oh, sure, we wouldn't film like those. That. We wouldn't film. No, I, but you I, say, I, you I, were saying uh, we
0: could go beyond, beyond what we talked about. There is the 2.0. Oh yeah. point Yeah, I mean it, and it could it could take place I think the thing I always liked was the idea of of McLaren uh going back somehow to just before <clears throat> we met all of those characters so they would st- there's no other way to have those same actors unless I went back to prior to well, their deaths, right?
1: I mean, for example, though, he goes to Nesta's character long before she even gets into the relationship and has that baby with a not only a warning, but a note that the FBI is recruiting people like you and literally sets a young person on another path. So then right. she ends up being the FBI agent. Now I'm telling people... Where we would go with this, I don't know how dangerous this is, but but no, it's, a Nesta, it's, a it's a teaser. It's a teaser. If, if you like Netflix, if, you, becomes... if you like what you're hearing, write write, uh, write tweets to uh, to Netflix right now. No, exactly. Uh, and so Nessa becomes a bona fide FBI agent who who never got into an abusive relationship, never got taken over by the traveler. Jen Spence's character can still come back as that character in that moment because a twist happens in the future. She just comes back to the same place because she knows it's possible. But also, also, you, uh, McLaren, as a person, has a vested—well, uh, I mean, three, four, six, eight—as a person has a vested interest in those people. He knows who they are. He knows, you know, of them. He, 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 he would want to save that character too from a, a, an alcoholic fate. You know, right? I mean, so there's That's lots right. of ways to uh, to approach it. One of my favorite scenes,
0: because a, a lot of the a lot of the questions in the last sort of 24 hours, or and the last three years, to be honest. Uh, Or, you know, what's your favorite scene? What's your favorite this? And the top of season three, the first episode, where we're all at the farmhouse and afraid to see what comes next. Yeah. And I I directed that episode. Thank you, Brad, for that. And the first scene we did on day one, we've been apart for months and months. Didn't know for months if we had a, a season three. Finally got it. And the first moment up with that crew at 730 in the morning on a whole day at the farmhouse was was Jay, alex princeton and myself with him being basically saying that's not my carly i don't know what you've done to her but she's not my carly and it's i just love that scene i love him in that scene and it's a i think people found find it interesting to to know that sometimes the best stuff happens when like everyone's barely out of bed we're barely out of makeup you just never know when
1: those those great moments are going to happen well, you know, he's he's young, and he has he was fairly new to a- acting at this level, and how he grew over the course of the. Uh, I always say, you want to make an actor good, give him a job, uh, and and give him a lot to do, <laughs> and you know, he, the, his arc. Oh my God, I mean, he he becomes a uh, yeah. Spoiler alert: He goes from being a uh, you know the character Jeff he was for the longest time, to becoming a traveler for a short period of time. to to ultimately near the end of the series, the villain, the uber villain. And he has to play that double-edged sword of pretending not to be at the same time. And so the scene, one of my favorite scenes in the whole series in the last episode, I think it's the last episode, yeah, is when he goes and you think he's being this wonderful man and his transition in that scene from uh, nice Jeff to evil 001 and ultimately the Mm -hmm. fight. Man, that guy's got some chops. Yeah, I mean, he was good.
0: Yeah, there was a scene that takes place in David's apartment, and unbeknownst to the audience, he is now no longer him. He is zero zero one, yeah. and Amanda Tapping is about to become. So, I mean, it was just—it was so complicated that uh, I had to ask you several times, why, why. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? But uh, but the way that... Uh, You're selling so yourself short, by the way. <laughs> know, but Jay Alex, the way he played that scene, you only really appreciate a, a second time through and you go, oh, I see what's happening. And there's a little trace of Enrico Colantoni's performance coming through yeah. in Jay, but it's subtle and it's, it was so
1: good. He actually we had a meeting in my office before we shot that scene and, and he wanted it because there's some very, fairly specific direction about that yeah. in, in the script. And, and he, wanted, he wanted to make sure he was right about that interpretation. And, uh, yeah. and the trick was obviously not hitting it with a hammer, especially since Enrico's character and the nice thing he did. I said that mentioned this in, the, in my last podcast. He's the kind of actor that, that, that gives you something different every performance and growing in scope so that he does one at four. He does one at seven. He does mm-hmm. one at 11 and it's nice to be able to cut between them. Jay, Jay wanted to know whether you wanted me to be at 11 or not, basically, Yeah. <laughs> for that moment. Oh, God, uh, it's making me sad thinking about this show. We had so much fun. We had a tremendous amount of fun. It was an incredible incredible group of people. We should talk also
0: just for a second about the crew. I mean, whenever oh, you see yeah. somebody win an award on a show, they always say, "Then thank you to the crew. Everybody's crew is great. Crews are the hardest working people on the show, but to have one that really loves working together, that takes a number of people, the heads of departments. Steve Jackson, who who didn't like the show originally but became our, our DOP. Um, light, you uh, mean light, ha- not like lighting the show. Like, yes. <laughs> our, he lit, he he lit, lit, lit the it show. Beginning.
1: <laughs>
0: no, he eventually liked it. He did such a great job. So fast. I mean, part of the we talked earlier in the podcast about about how you make a show like this with this limited amount of money and make it look so good. And a lot of that has to do with how fast the crew moves, how fast uh, the show is lit, and that was uh, that was care podcast. enough
1: to to, do, to still to do it to go that extra mile still. And oh, this God, is yeah. what always always kills me when I know we have limited resources and time, and somebody from the set deck department or the props department says. Is this okay? I worked through the weekend on it. And it's not yeah. only okay, it's magnificent. And thank you for yeah. doing that. And, you know, bless your heart. I can't believe, you know, you're there for it so much. And when you when you show up at early and know that everybody else there has, has been there before. I mean, I, I was often when I was, you know, in the thick of it, the first person in the office, but I was never the last person out of it ever. There's right. just so many people who work hard. And we had such great producers too. Yeah. And we have to mention what a great writer's room we had. Ken and, and Ashley and, and uh Pat and, and Jay were yeah. were like so good. They were amazing. Yeah. Going back to the to, to the casting, the, and the the luck of that, one of the beauties of it was the, the people who were choosing the cast were basically you, myself, Carrie, and Maureen, mm-hmm. and, and Nick, of course, who had a huge voice as the pilot director. I think, I think one of the, the beauties of doing a small show below the radar, as opposed to a giant, you know, big budget show, is you don't have that 10,000 voice committee helping you right. to make those decisions. I mean, quite often, my, our notes process was, what do you think, Eric? I like it. You always had thoughts, and they were always smart. But, but it wasn't the rigmarole you go through quite often with a normal right. network show. Netflix, I got great notes, especially in season three from Cole Galvin, who was wonderful when we were strictly a Netflix show. And Robin Einstein gave us some nice notes too, uh, our Canadian partner. But they were never root canal notes. They were never notes that made me tear the whole thing apart, even right. though we weren't answering those questions. Even though, like you said, you know, the answers would have to come eventually. It's, and the, the trust that came with that is so rare. I, you know, Yeah. I and mean, I know you went back and and did Will and Grace uh, after I guess it was between seasons two and three. Well, it was even it was after oh, season, it was well, season. I think it was after season one. We had
0: uh, it was those season two one shows. exactly. Yeah, the reboot of Will and Grace lived virtually hand in hand with, and and that's a huge tribute to two different uh, production teams and and producers making something work, which was great.
1: But uh, you had almost an afternoon off between. The, is what I recall. You had that oh. whole afternoon. Yeah, uh, uh, went for a walk, I recall. Something like that. <laughs> your wife said hello. And uh, no complaints. We were in Vancouver. We shot the
0: last day of season three. And then I flew back and started uh, season three, I guess, of, of the reboot.
1: I mean, incredible. But it was fun for you, I think. And it must have been fun for you to play two completely different characters. I mean, you should talk a little bit about that. Going from yeah, I mean, Will I think... to Grant to Will. My mother, my sister, my mother, my sister.
0: Uh You know, the thing that you, I remember when I, when I, uh, when I accepted Will & Grace in 1998, when I took the, the role, already I was thinking about my epitaph. I was thinking about my tombstone being Here Lies Will Truman because that's what happens with most successful television. You get one shot, you are grateful for it if it's successful, but people don't see you any other way. So I was always grateful for anybody after that first run that ended in 2006, grateful for any producer or network executive that saw me differently than not just as Will Truman. I did a show for, for TNT for three years called Perception that was uh, very different. But then when you came along and saw me in this incredibly different way, I really wanted to rise to the challenge and make McLaren very different. So to have a couple of years in a row, which I guess were 2017 and 18, where I was going back and forth between cities, between genres, between characters that were so different, and yet, we're both clean-shaven guys that dress in suits very often. But, but I had yes, to find, you know,
1: uh, I, I had, had to, to I had to find the. Find them. Sorry, yeah, you had, you, but you, but you did too. And, and I often remember you coming back for the first day on Travelers, and it just took you that one day to find Grant again. But it was like such a different performance. I, for the first time in my life, you invited my wife and I down to, uh, to watch a live taping of Will and Grace. Yeah. And which is a big commitment. You're there for eight hours or something. But I got to tell you, it was not that hard to laugh. It, you guys were unbelievable. And I found myself envious of that process. Because it's so wildly different. Yeah. Uh, the writers are all there, and you try a joke, and the writers all gather in a huddle, and then they whisper in your ear, and and you you nod and laugh, or laugh, and then nod, and then you got it, which also blew me away. All of your capacity to, to just take on the new joke and find the timing in it immediately, and boom, you do another another take, and it's got the new joke, and the audience laughs even harder, and and you know, kismet, magic has happened. And so when I was lucky enough also to, uh, when Carrie and I flew down to witness you get your your star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, it was a great day. I mean, how often do you get to see a friend of yours get that honor? It was fun. I I was was lucky enough to sit uh, with the writer-creators of Will and Grace uh, at lunch. And I told them I was jealous. And they said, that's funny because we're jealous of you. (laughs) because you get to go and you get crane shots and you know you get to do cg and you get to do multiple angles and shoot a scene all day and and i thought "Eh, it's true
0: the grass is always greener and and i would another question that comes up a lot on twitter is which do you prefer it's like uh, there's no prefer i love being on stage i love the sort of hybrid of stage and screen that comes with sitcom and and a live studio audience. But I also love the concentration that goes into an hour long, into a single camera drama, but particularly something that has the tension of of a show like Travelers, which rarely, we had a few, you would write the occasional comic scene, but for the most part, there's a tension that you have to maintain and each character has to maintain it in their own way, each each actor. I've, I just love, across the board, I love all the challenges to that.
1: Yeah, my, one of my favorite moments of that, stung perfectly by Adam Latuska, are uh, talk about a risk, holy cow, our, our, our young Canadian composer who had never done a show anywhere near this scale right. before. And Nick and I listened to his, uh, his music and went, this is the guy, let's roll the dice on this guy. Talk about great music. But one of my favorite moments in all of Travelers is, I, I can't remember who shot it. I think it was Amanda. But you and Leah are about to do a scene where they're going to go and have sex that night and she has to quickly run and pee. And, she, and you say something about, oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting the Pattersons. And she goes, right. you introduced us. And there's almost a, a moment where you, your face comes really close into camera and it's, the music kind of stings it a little bit. And it's that, oh, fuck moment. Oh. Or that, oh, shit moment. Sorry. just when I thought I was lying out. really well. Just when you thought you're getting away with it. That's, and, and to be able to keep it going, to keep that tension going constantly and continuously, that's the fun of a show like this.
0: Okay, here's here's what I I, I want to say. And we've said this before, we'll say it again. Anything's possible in this world. And uh, so many people are discovering Travelers now. And so many of them, for everyone that says, love the ending, because it was a great ending. But there's two others that say... Where's more? So please don't storm the Capitol or or write your congressman. Just tweet Netflix and say more travelers. And I swear if if there's enough fans worldwide, someone will listen. Anything's possible. We would love to do it again. I I miss it. I miss working with you and Carrie and making, uh, making this show in Vancouver.
1: I like I said earlier, I, I think that it would be Travelers 2.0. It would be it would essentially be a new series, starting with the preconditions of Grant McLaren in the 21st century in yeah. the year 2001, finding his way to present day, needing to find a way to save the world again. Save the
0: world and to find those to find those characters. I think that's that would be the biggest challenge for you is what's the plausible way that we can get back to as many of those characters as possible? before they're, they were originally supposed to
1: die. But what does the story become? I have some thoughts on that, Eric. I, have some, I know you do. Uh, I have some solutions. And you know what? Maybe on that note, we should button it's this a, up.
0: As you always did on the show, a positive note and a note that reeks of more to come.
1: And I as the show so would go, like...
0: thanks for having me brad i'm I'm so glad you have a you have a voice out there now and you can talk about all the work you've done so have me back anytime
1: great i will because i love yapping with you whether we're walking or having lunch or dinner or in public like this or making a tv show oh even better perfect better there's an idea all right see you bud take care bud. eric's such a great guy If you haven't checked out Travellers yet, you really should. Erica's amazing in it. If you enjoyed this interview, you can find my essays and a 100 more stories like these on The Companion at www.thecompanion.app. See you next time. Hi there.
0: This is Chief Master Sergeant Walter Harriman, your favorite gatekeeper. Have you ever wondered what it takes to become a certified Stargate technician? Well, now you can find out because I'm going to share my knowledge and experience with a select group of aspiring and enthusiastic gators. I want to give you a chance to be a hero, too. That's why I'm happy to announce that on March 11th, I'll be taking a small number of students for my class, Gate Tech 101. Tickets are on sale now at thecompanion.app slash events you won't want to miss this because it's not just a stargate master class it's a stargate chief master sergeant class see you there but for now chevron 7 is locked